We are continuing today our series in Romans. It's been a little while, but we're back to Romans, uh, and we're up to chapter 5, verse 6 to 8, if you want to open your Bibles ready uh, for us as we come to look at it in just a moment. But as we, as, we, as we begin to look at Romans, I want to ask you, what would it take for you to get a tattoo? Like, what would persuade you to get a tattoo? It'd have to be something pretty big, wouldn't it? Most of us. I don't know. Some people these days get tattoos at the drop of a hat. But knowing many of you, I'm guessing that it would take some persuasion to get a tattoo. And what would you get? Like, what would you get? picture of an animal, maybe maybe you get a Bible verse, lots of people like Bible verses, that's appropriate for us, maybe, maybe you would get the name, someone's name tattooed on you, I'm not, I'm not seeing a lot of uh, a lot of possibility of this actually happening, it seems, from the, the looks I'm getting. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, lots of people like to get a name tattooed. It's quite popular these days. Uh, here's some, just some examples. Arm tattoos of people's names, and they all start with A for some reason in this photo. Uh, you get the picture. People, people, one of the things they go for is putting names on their bodies. But it's not just anyone's name, is it? They don't just go for, what's a name that I like? I might get tattooed on me. Who do they get tattooed? The names of people they love. The names of people that are close to them. Almost always it's the partner, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, or child or parent. Very more rarely, I think, the People might get, I've seen people with the tattoo of a friend who has died and it's the rest in peace kind of tattoo. I won't, won't forget them. But it's always someone close. I've ne- I'm yet to meet the person who has tattooed on them someone they don't like. Just, just wanted to remember you, keep you close, always carry you around with me. That's not how it works, is it? We, we as in human beings, we, we, don't, we don't act like that. If we're going to go to such a cost of imprinting someone's name on our body, it's going to be someone that is special, someone that means a lot to us, someone that we love. Uh, this... This kind of same, same thing is expressed in other ways. People get tattoos uh, of other things they love, don't they? Pets, uh, sports teams, get the logo. Uh, I like this one particularly. England 2018 World Cup winners. Uh, someone was eager. I think, I don't know how close it was. It was maybe when they were at the semi-final stage. Uh, they started cheering, it's coming home, and uh, got the tattoo. But uh, they'd waited maybe a week later. They could have saved themselves some pain and trouble because it didn't come home. Uh, England didn't win the 2018 World Cup. But that's happened a few times. People get the 
get the tattoo in anticipation of the win, anticipation of victory, of celebrating. I haven't heard of anyone who's got the tattoo after their team has lost. No one gets the tattoo to celebrate their team getting the wooden spoon, do they? They don't want to remember that. They try and forget it. Look to next season. Hope that it's better. Well, why am I talking about tattoos? Well, it's, it's one of the ways that we express something that's significant. And it's a costly process. In, it costs money. It costs part of our body. It costs pain. It costs commitment. You've got to keep looking at it. Depends where it is, I suppose, but uh, you've, got to, you've got to put up with it. It's a costly process. And today as we turn to Romans, we're looking at the cost that God himself bore for us. We've seen in Romans, Paul's introduced us to the gospel. He's talking about the gospel, the good news that God reveals. He's revealed good news that sinners who deserve his judgment, can be right in his sight, can enjoy his favour in being in a good relationship with him. And this, we've been told, happens because of the Lord Jesus and his death. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to demonstrate his righteousness, to show that he still will punish sin. And if he wants to let us go unpunished, the punishment we had to take on himself in the person of his son. And up in chapter 5, we're we're digging down into the implications of this. What does it mean? There's so many angles on this good news. Paul unpacks a little bit in in verse 6 to 8 of chapter 5. And we see what it demonstrates is the incredible extent of God's love for us. Let's turn now to to Romans 5 and, and read it together. Romans 5, just verses 6 to 8. Paul writes, he says, You see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. few things to note here. Paul starts by reminding us of the state that we were in when, when Christ died for us. In God's perfect timing, at the time that he had planned from the beginning of the world for his purposes to come together, at this point, Christ died. And he died for us. What state were we in then? Paul says, we were powerless, weak, unable to achieve righteousness 
by ourselves. In fact, we weren't just weak and in the sense of impotent. We were weak in the sense of fallen and corrupted. Christ died for the ungodly, morally bankrupt. There was nothing about us that was able to recommend us to God. We didn't have power to twist his arm. We didn't have anything about us that was appealing. He didn't look at us and go, well, those people that I made, they're really good. They're they're doing a wonderful job of reflecting my image, showing my character by the way they live and interact and steward the world that I've put them over. No, none of that. That Christ died for the ungodly. And this, to Paul, is a point that's worth dwelling on. Now, he then goes into examples from our own experience. He points out that rarely, very rarely, will anyone die for a righteous person. But for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. People dying for each other isn't unknown, is it? It happens. It's happened throughout the history of the world. Uh, We see in wars, as soldiers go off to fight to defend the town, they go and, in many cases, sacrifice lives for the sake of the community, for the sake of their homes, their families. They give their lives in order to save and protect others. This happens across the world. It's happened throughout history. People will give their lives in an individual way as well, won't they? Not just as part of a war. When someone's in danger, sometimes we, we know people will put themselves at risk for others. There's lots of stories of someone being out at sea, of being in the waves and struggling, and someone going in to, to rescue them and pull them out. And enabling them to to get to safety, and yet the rescuer goes under themselves. There's stories of people stepping in front of someone who's threatening to protect someone else. The, The classic taking a bullet scenario. Some people get paid for it. There's the kind of like secret service that protects the president of the United States kind of role. In lots of cases, it's people just dying for the person who was the friend that they were with, that was in danger, their family member. There's stories that come out of tragic circumstances where there's assaults on schools and teachers give up their lives to protect students. Stories of mothers shielding their children with their bodies.
There's stories of people being in that impossible situation. You know, when they're like the truck driver who's hurtling down the road and realizes that his brakes have failed and can't stop before plowing into the shop full of people at the end. And so in selflessness, sacrifices himself by turning the truck sharply and causing it to roll, giving up his own life but saving those who would have been in the line of impact. This happens. It doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. And people will give up their lives for others. They give up their lives for people they know and love, their family, their friend. In some circumstances, they'll give up their lives for the random stranger they don't know. In those, those acts of altruism, they don't know. But in all these stories that you can read, there's piles and compilations of them on the internet. I poured through some this week. I did not read one where someone gave up their life for an enemy. No one gave up the lives to save the one who was threatening them. No. What Paul says here is true, isn't it? Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. Someone that we know and respect. I think he's playing off righteous and good here, not as kind of like two levels of quality, um, as in saying like someone might occasionally die for a righteous person, maybe a bit more likely for a good person. I don't think he's saying in terms of their quality. I think he's kind of contrasting that sense of righteous as in that cold kind of righteousness. That they hold themselves well. They do all the right things. They, they're seen to be righteous. They certainly see themselves to be righteous. But as opposed to the good person whose character is commendable, who people appreciate, I think he's kind of saying that, that there's those, those aspects to it. In the way that sometimes the Pharisees were thought of as righteous, though weren't respected as good. People rarely would die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But here's the contrast. Who does Jesus die for? Jesus dies for his enemies, for the powerless human race, for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates love. Not because we were lovable, because we had anything about us that 
was commendable, that God kind of was inclined to us because he looked at us and saw deep in our hearts there was, there was something nice, there was a seed of goodness there that he liked. No, he loved us when there was no cause in us for love. There was no, nothing intrinsically lovable about us. We were his enemies. We'd rejected him. We deserve his wrath. Remember chapter 1? where we spent quite a few weeks unpacking how the human race deserved God's wrath. We deserve his anger, not his love. And yet, this is the measure of his love. This is the demonstration of his love. He is committed to us, even as his enemies, while we are still sinners, while we are still offending him by our actions, by our thoughts, by our not respecting him as God and not giving him the thanks that he is due. It's then that Christ dies for us. At the point where we clearly were not worthy of his love. God chooses to value us and to pay that cost. That costs, that's not just an imprint in the body, a name tattooed, but it's the scars from the wounds, from the abuse and the humiliation of being rejected by the very people he created and came to save. The very people he was serving put Jesus to death. The people he loved killed him. That's the demonstration of God's love. That shows us what he is like. If we read in other parts of the Bible, like John, uh, 1 John chapter 4, we see he describes this not just as this is a demonstration of God's love, but this is actually the definition that shows us what true love is. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God looks at us and sees our sin, our unworthiness, our weakness, and acts for our benefit at great cost to himself. This is love. Selfless, costly, sacrificial. This is love. Friends, as we consider this, we, we need to think about what it means for us to be these, these, these people. We need to be real about the state we were in before God. We are the ones who were powerless, who were ungodly, 
who were sinners, who were his enemies. We are the ones without a germ of deserving in us. That God, his love and his choice of us is not because, because we were worthy, because we were lovable. Rather, it's the other way around, isn't it? We are worthy because he chose to love us, because of his choice. We are valuable and precious to him. Sometimes it's easy to, to look at ourselves, look in the mirror and question what our value is. look at our lives especially we we see the mistakes that we make and we sometimes can be very aware of them and our sense of unworthiness can grow sometimes other people feed into this as well they treat us they remind us of our failures they act as though we are unworthy as though we are unlovable. Sometimes it can be depressing, it can get you despondent thinking about this reality. And that's when we need to turn not to the people around us, not just to the mirror that reflects our own failings and faults. We need to turn again to, to God. And remind ourselves that in spite of all our failings and our unworthiness, we are precious and valuable to him. We are, we are extrinsically valued. Our value comes from the outside. We won't discover it by digging down. It gets messy, doesn't it, in there? more you examine your innermost thoughts, your deepest desires, the more you see how conflicted they are, how much selfishness is entangled with what we think is generosity and goodness. If we try and find our worth in there, we'll be disappointed. But we find our worth not in what we do and who we are, but in what Jesus has done and who he is. And we ought to think this way, not just about ourselves too, shouldn't we? We need to think this way about each other. It's easy to slip into that same frame and to notice each other's faults and failings and to devalue each other in this way. It's easy to treat people based on how deserving they come across of our respect and love. It's easy to love those who are more lovable. But that's not God's way. We ought to be different from the way the world loves. 
the way the world respects. We ought to love like God. People that participate in our community as a church here and in churches across the world, there should be a sense of difference, shouldn't there? Where people who feel unworthy, who know their their own weakness, can experience a dignity and being valued that is not based on their deservedness. It is based on how God sees us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people who come to visit our church walk out with a sense of experiencing that? Being treated better than they deserve. Recognising that there's something about the way that we welcome and love. Maybe they wouldn't even be able to put it into words or pinpoint exactly what it is. Wouldn't it be wonderful if people coming to be part of our church experienced this, this love? God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We don't deserve it, and yet we can enjoy it. We read earlier from Matthew, didn't we? And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that wonderful picture that, that he begins with, describing what the kingdom of God is like. And it's upside down, isn't it? It just challenges everyone's assumptions. Blessed are the weak, the poor, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst. Well, we might summarize what Paul says today in in Romans 5, verses 6 to 8 as, Blessed are the unlovable, for they will be loved. Lord God, we thank you for these wonderful verses that remind us of the way that you love, the way that you love us. Please help us to grow in our understanding and our appreciation of your love. And as we do, Lord, please help us to love like you love. Pray this in Jesus' name.